Welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast. As part of this podcast series, we are tackling some of the issues that parties may face when they or their counterparty are seeking to exit contracts which they no longer wish to be bound by, which is obviously very topical at the moment due to the events coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's episode will focus on force majeure clauses in English law governed contracts, and specifically when force majeure clause can be triggered, what factors parties need to consider when calling a force majeure event, and the consequences of incorrectly calling a force majeure event. My name is Chris Mitchell, and I'm a senior associate in ANO's London Structured and Asset Finance team. Joining me on this podcast today are Helen Biggin and Peter Watson. Helen is counsel in the ANO London litigation team, and Peter is a consultant also in the ANO London litigation team. The triggering of force majeure clauses is a very hot topic at the moment, and a large number of the client queries that I'm seeing from a transactional perspective relate to this. Helen, from a litigation perspective, are you seeing similar queries? Yes, we are seeing numerous queries on force majeure clauses, um, as well as questions being raised about whether contracts have been legally frustrated. There does seem to be some confusion regarding the doctrine of frustration and force majeure with clients treating these as interchangeable issues. There is an important distinction to these concepts under English law, namely that force majeure is a contractual remedy only, whereas the doctrine of frustration arises out of the English common law. This contrasts with the position in other countries where, for example, force majeure might be implied under civil codes or by legislation. Now, this is an important distinction. First, it means that under English law, force majeure clauses cannot be implied into a contract. If your contract does not contain a force majeure clause, then you'll have to consider whether, for example, you can argue your contract has been legally frustrated in order to terminate the contract. And the second important distinction is that a contract may be discharged on the grounds of frustration, but generally the force majeure event does not operate to terminate the contract. It merely excuses or suspends the performance of the contract until the force majeure event ends. If you have a force majeure clause in your contract, that will normally be the starting point for a party seeking to rely on a particular event as a reason to suspend contractual obligations. However, that's not to say that the same contract can't also be terminated for frustration if the event doesn't fall within the provisions of the force majeure clause, but still makes it physically or legally impossible to perform the contract. It is interesting because in the transactional space, we have seen a number of cases during this pandemic period where counterparties have asserted that they are exercising their rights in respect of the force majeure event caused by COVID-19, even though their agreements do not include a force majeure clause. As a general rule, in terms of operating leasing agreements that are governed by English law, it would be extremely rare to see a force majeure clause that applies during the lease term. This would cut across the hell or high water provision that is one of the foundational principles of operating leasing. Running this argument may well be without legal merit and could be a risky strategy. As Peter suggests, the key issue when considering force majeure clauses is whether the event in question falls within the provisions of the clause. Cases involving force majeure clauses invariably focus on how they are interpreted and whether a certain event falls within the scope of such clauses. When interpreting force majeure clauses, the English court will have consideration for the following three issues. 
One, they will place a strong emphasis on the words used in their context. Two, they will interpret any clause objectively, but narrowly. And three, they will favour the interpretation which is most consistent with business common sense. The burden of proving that a particular event falls within the confines of a force majeure clause rests with the party that is seeking to rely upon it. And Helen, that idea that the burden of proof rests with the defaulting party makes sense from a commercial point of view as well as a legal one. Because one of the consequences of successfully invoking a force majeure clause is that it provides a defence to the defaulting party and shifts the contractually allocated risk from one party to another. It is for this reason that if there is any ambiguity in how the clause is interpreted, the English courts will uphold the interpretation that favours the non-defaulting party. Yes, Chris, and, and, and this, this, this crucial and difficult point um, means that, that although many force majeure clauses contain catch-all wording to ensure that a list of specified events doesn't limit um, the ambit of the clause, there can still be problems arising. Now, for example, wording relating to events being beyond the party's reasonable control are often included. So this wording then leads to debates about whether it is wide enough to cover the impact that certain events, such as COVID-19, uh, have had on the performance of contracts. Now, this case, that case is Tandrin Aviation Holdings Limited versus Aero Toy Store LLC, where the court considered a force majeure clause which contained the phrase, any other cause beyond the seller's reasonable control as part of that list of events. And the court held in a limiting way that this phrase had to be read in the context of the entire clause. Yes, and the Tandring case was an interesting case because in reaching its decision, the court noted that the clause did not contain any events which were even remotely connected with the force majeure event that was being relied upon. And here it was the 2008 financial crash. It's therefore clear that whether an event falls within the confines of a force majeure clause will turn upon the wording and interpretation of each specific clause, but that there is scope to argue that a generic phrase may encompass other events, such as COVID-19, even if the contract doesn't deal with it specifically. Helen, Peter, one question I've seen raised repeatedly during this COVID-19 pandemic period relates to the ability to claim a force majeure event based on new legislation. A number of governments have stated that social distancing measures should be adhered to, but often this is just guidance rather than being laid down in law. Would the court view such essentially voluntary steps as amounting to an event beyond the party's control? Again, the answer will turn upon the exact wording of the force majeure clause in question, but it is easy to see how the consequences that flow from the implementation of voluntary measures or guidance would not be sufficient to amount to a force majeure event. Taking this further, even if legal measures are put in place that are beyond a party's control, this may still not be sufficient. For example, travel bans on airlines do not make it illegal to pay rent under a lease. It just makes it more financially difficult. That's right, Chris. And unfortunately, although a lot of companies are obviously feeling the squeeze at the minute, financial hardship is not enough to trigger a force majeure event. It has to be something that makes the contract or certain contractual obligations physically or legally impossible to perform, not just more expensive to do so. 
There may be a limited exception to this rule if, for example, the force majeure event in question drives prices to an extreme level. Then there could be scope to argue that this amounts to a force majeure event. However, this would not be straightforward argument to make, not least because the vast majority of cases argue the opposite. However, given the extent of the market position at the minute, I wouldn't be surprised to see a case attempting to argue such an exception in the near future. Okay, so we've discussed the importance of interpreting the force majeure clause correctly and causation. Are there any other points to consider? Uh, yes, I mean, Chris, one point I had in mind is that whilst it's not fatal, it will usually be more difficult to claim a force majeure event if that event was foreseeable at the time the parties entered into the contract. Now, there's no principle which limits force majeure clauses in this respect. But it is easy to see how the court would have limited sympathy for a party who entered into a contract when a set of events amounting to force majeure existed at the time, or it was really reasonably foreseeable that they would materialise in the near future. I've also seen attempts by impecunious companies to rely on force majeure clause to avoid their contractual obligations, and mostly obligations to pay when these companies were in breach before the force majeure event arose. And these parties will really struggle to rely on force majeure uh, to successfully avoid performance if they were already in default or in breach of contract. And another important point to, to consider when thinking about exercising any force majeure clauses are the risks that might arise if you get it wrong. For example, if you rely on a force majeure clause and it's later found that such an event was not a force majeure uh, event, then the counterparty may argue that this amounts to repudiation of the contract and seek damages on this basis. Yeah, and, and in addition to this, it's very important to abide by any contractual notice provisions contained in the agreement. For example, a party seeking to rely on a force majeure event will have to give notice in writing within five days of the event occurring, identifying the event, et cetera, et cetera. And, and failure to do so could, in the worst case scenario, where the notice provisions are deemed to be a condition precedent, act uh, as a complete bar to reliance on the force majeure clause. Also, any party exercising force majeure rights should also have regard to their duty to mitigate losses that might arise if contractual obligations are not performed. And this duty will be implied even if the contract is silent on the matter. Thanks, Peter. In summary, the key to successfully triggering a force majeure clause is interpreting the words of the contract correctly by paying close attention to the words used, factual matrix, and following the interpretation that makes the most business common sense. Questions of interpretation are not always easy to decipher, and the consequences of getting it wrong could be severe. So any party should only exercise a force majeure clause with caution after giving it due and careful consideration. In short, it is not an easy argument to run, and so it shouldn't be seen as a get out of jail free card. Thanks to Helen and Peter for their thoughts and views, and thank you for listening. As ever, if you have any queries on any of the topics we have discussed, do not hesitate to contact any of us or your usual A&O contact. Thank you.